Live from the heartland and the crossroads of America, it's Tony Katz today. You see, you know it's 2023 because someone will say whiteness is evil and you're like, meh, I've heard worse. Like, that's how you know. That's the telltale sign. People could be like, oh, yeah, by color of skin, we know you're evil. And everyone else would be like, oh, oh, 2023 already? <laughs> Didn't even see the ball drop. Must have must have slept right through that. That's, that's clearly what happened. Tony Katz. Tony Katz today. What's going on, everybody? 833-GOT-TONY. 833-468-8669. Find everything. TonyKatz.Locals.com. TonyKatz.Locals.com. This is the story. This has to do with a, a, a school board in Michigan. I had caught this on on Twitchy. Twitchy's an interesting site run by the town hall people. And Twitchy, um, it, it, it's covering what's going on on Twitter. From people, you, you don't really need to know who they are, but they're they're like Twitter, they're Twitter infamous. God, God wouldn't give them enough respect for Twitter famous. But they're, they're not in your life because if you're not on Twitter, you're not paying attention. You don't know who they are. But they weirdly carry some level of influence or uh, it's just about exposing just some real madness. That's exactly what the Libs of TikTok account does. What she does is expose progressive madness. The reason that so many people on the political left hate Libs of TikTok and make the claim that she's targeting transgender people or gay people. She's going to get people killed. No. She finds things on TikTok and says, hey, look at this. The problem is people are looking. They want these things to be underground. They don't want them to get too much play. They just want to get them enough play. But the last thing they want is somebody powerful enough to be able to show off what it is they're saying and therefore hurt their missions, objectives, desires, ideological fantasies, etc. It's a weird game they play. So Libs of TikTok shows a school board member in it's Minnesota, right? Michigan, sorry, Michigan, uh, Keisha Hamilton. And Keisha Hap- Hamilton has a series of tweets saying things like, whiteness is so evil. It manipulates, then says, I won't apologize for my dishonesty and trauma-inducing practices and thinks you should applaud it for being honest about its ability to manipulate and be dishonest. Hashtag deceitful. Hashtag perfidious. Of, relating to, or marked by perfidy. Treacherous. I never know if it's Perfidy or if it's perfidy? I never I never know if I'm pronouncing it properly. Violation of good faith, false to trust or confidence reposed, treacherous or faithless. That's that's uh, perfidious. The last thing she writes you have to worry about is an animal, though that thought could be a very real threat. More dangerous are any white folks you may see on the trail. Be safe. She continues, found another job eventually, thankful. The effects of this stuff laughs. Working, living in, around with white folks is incredibly difficult. Being subjected to them, their violence and treachery is severely abrasive. But they sleep peacefully at night. It's just tough out here. And then, of course, these white women are the stupidest. This is a school board member. Now, I ask you, I ask you, 
Is this somebody who should be on the school board, yes or no? Is this someone who should be on the school board? Hamilton, uh, when reached for comment by, for example, Fox News, said whiteness defined is white racialized identity, refer- which refers to the way pe- that white people, their customs, culture, and beliefs operate as the standard by which all other groups are compared. Whiteness is a construct, a normalization with a foundation of white supremacy. Recent examples of the normalization of whiteness with a foundation of white supremacy are the murder of George Floyd, the massacre of black residents in Buffalo, New York, the attempted kidnapping of Governor Whitmer, not quite sure how that works, the attack on our democracy on January 6th, inconsistencies of our criminal justice system, etc. So basically, she wants to tell us that anything she decides is whiteness is. Um... There's a reason people hate you, Miss Hamilton. It's because you're hateful. You're not smart. You're not with it. You're not connected to something. It's just hateful. It's just, you you, you, you figure that there's a, I don't know, maybe there's a profit to it, whether that profit is actual dollars or that profit is opportunity or that, you know, it, it's it's social standing, whatever it is. Do you want this person being in charge of the education of your kids? Do you think she can do it? I don't believe she can do it. There's no way she's looking out for kids. She's looking out for a specific set of kids. And worse, she's looking to take out a specific set of kids. What? What did I say? I said something wrong? No, no, no. I I think I've got this covered. I think I've got this covered. She is looking out for a certain set of kids and she's looking at for taking out another set of kids. If you think white people are animals, you're looking to take them out. Look, notice the dehumanizing in, in Ms. Hamilton's statements. These people are a threat. These people are animals. I, I, I'm assuming somewhere you're going to find the statement where it's a compare, uh, comparing people who are white to a virus. And note, she doesn't even think that maybe somebody else is fine or maybe this person caused a problem or this person said something she disagreed with or this person did something good. No, no, no. It is guilt based on color of skin. It's the new KKK, baby. Except Miss Hamilton doesn't feel the need to wear a hood. What's the difference? What is the difference? For me, sitting here right now in front of this microphone, there's no difference between Miss Hamilton and the KKK because in both cases, guaranteed, they both hate the Jews. Come on. Come on. You know, no matter which way I look, they're like, nah, nah, you're not, you, you, you can't come to the meeting. No. No, 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 no. Sorry, sorry. Meeting is all full up. Sorry, you are uh, you are not welcome. You are not welcome. Go back to your deli. People speaking uh, at the school district saying that uh, she's angry and bitter. Her racist comments should not be condoned. saying you are not addressing the disparities, you are adding to them by your hurtful remarks. Your words are not unifying our community, your words are dividing our community. And then the kicker, the DEI specialist, diversity, equity, and inclusion specialist, Maisha Jones, saying that Hamilton's comments about whiteness were taking aim at systemic racism and not white people.
Way to have it covered. Way to have it covered. Look at you. No matter which way you're going, you ping, I got a shield here. Ping, I got a thing there. Oh, I can take this one. Oh, we're moving on that one. You just got it covered all the way around. Good Lord. You want to know why people leave public education? This is why. This is why. And let me state for the record, man, just crack public education in two. Crack it in two. People who send their kids to public school need to be on the lookout all the time. Private school as well. This is what you're up against. Hateful people who are proud of it and are taking advantage of tax dollars and a system to further their own hate. My advice, do something about it. Take your kids out of the school, vote vote differently in school board elections, run for school board. Don't ever be quiet. Don't ever be silent. More to get to. I'm Tony Katz. Whether you're talking IU or you're talking Purdue, basketball's looking pretty good. Tony Katz, good to be with you. IU beating Illinois 80-65. to And the truth is, it wasn't even that close. Trace Jackson Davis, 35 points, 9 rebounds, 5 assists. Then you've got Purdue, number 3. Uh, we should probably make that number two at this stage of the game, shouldn't we? 61 to 39 over Minnesota. And yet with how well these teams are doing and these programs are doing, nothing overshadows the fact that the Indianapolis Colts don't have a head coach. Jeff Saturday gets the interview, and as we're learning, the Colts now want an interview with the Bengals offensive coordinator, Brian Callahan. Honestly, I am an hour away of getting a call from Jim Irsay to interview for this job. JMV joins us from 93.5-1075. The fan, of course, the king of sports in Indianapolis is JMV. Uh, before we get into the Colts conversation, let's start with that IU win last night, 80-65. Um, my gosh, they look good. Yeah, much needed on the road, Tony, no doubt about that. And really, you go back to the last two, that home game on Saturday against Wisconsin, and then last night in Champaign. It starts on the defensive end, make no question about that, because those are defensive performances that you did not see uh, in the games prior. Penn State, Northwestern, second half against Iowa, had a lot of people questioning exactly what Mike Woodson was doing, and rightly so. But there has been uh, an inspiration of sorts, certainly on both ends, but it starts on the defensive end. And certainly last night, too, Tony, it helped a great deal that Brad Underwood, the head coach of the Fighting Illini, decided not to double-team Trace Jackson Davis. And as you mentioned, he goes and has his way with 35 points. So, yeah, shout-out to the coaching staff of Illinois for helping out in that cause last night, too. Well, that's just rude right there. (laughs) Well, sometimes on a Friday morning we have to be rude, Tony. We do. Um, is IU with these last two wins, are they making a case for putting themselves back in the top 25? 
Uh, I don't know about the top 25 just yet. You probably have to make a little bit more of a case, and they'll get that opportunity on Sunday because they got have Michigan State. Michigan State knocked off, I think, uh, top 25 ranked Rutgers last night. So, yeah, you'll make more of a case of that. I just think what they're looking for right now is a more consistent level of play. And, and granted, I mean, they're missing Ray Thompson, Tony. They're missing Xavier Johnson. Those are two significant pieces, no doubt about that. But, yeah, this team uh, should have and certainly is right now uh, playing better than it had in those uh, three games, two and a half games, if you will, that I had mentioned previously. And we'll see if that inspiration still holds true because, honestly, it has started in the last two games on the defensive end. Let's move it up the road to West Lafayette. Purdue, with that win over Minnesota, are they making the case for being number one again? No question about that. I mean, they are a step ahead of everybody right now. Tony, here's what's impressed me the most about Purdue. You know, outside of last night where they just go up to, to Minneapolis and blow out Minnesota in their own building is the road wins that they have. But you couple that with the one possession road wins like at Ohio State, like at Michigan State. You go back to that Nebraska game where things were hanging in the balance. That's probably what impresses me more than anything else on the season so far for Matt Painter. And I told him as such on Tuesday is that you're getting these road wins, and that's tough to do in any league, especially the Big Ten, but you're doing it in some one-possession situations. That is the sign of incredible coaching and great leadership. And guys, you're talking about a freshman in Fletcher Lawyer or the player of the year, if you were going to take a vote right now on Zach Eady, guys that are simply getting it done at the end of the game in those types of situations, Tony, and that's impressive. Talking to JMV from 93.5-1075, the fan, right here in Indianapolis. He is the voice of Indianapolis sports. I've dubbed him so, so it must be true. Now let's move it over. Uh, the Indianapolis Colts have interviewed 14,283 people for head coach. Jeff Saturday, the interim head coach, got his interview just yesterday. And, you, you, I mean, this has been the talk uh, today. Brian Callahan, offensive coordinator for the Bengals, they're still in it. They're still playing. Um, he is going to get the interview as well. This guy has been interviewed for uh, the, the, the gigs before. Um, what in the world are the Colts looking for? And what is your take? How did it go with Jeff Saturday? Well, you throw me cliche out there, Tony, right? And I know that you read a lot of cliches all the time and what you do, uh, stuff that other people have to say. But when you cast that wide net in this coaching search, if you're Chris Ballard, right, I mean, you're casting a wide net, and that's exactly what they're doing. I, I don't know if there's any rhyme or reason to it. I mean, there are a lot of philosophies out there as to why people believe that they're doing that. Um, you know, to make certainly sure that you follow every NFL hiring protocol uh, to just the fact that they want to see absolutely everybody or maybe Chris Ballard's bringing in anybody and everybody because the owner, Jim Irsay, wants Jeff Saturday and Chris Ballard doesn't want Jeff Saturday, which still looms large right here. I tell you, if you're asking my opinion, you have it. I'm going to give it to you anyway. If you're asking my opinion (laughs) as far as what they need, the guy that I like so far – Outside of Jim Harbaugh, who evidently has zero interest, is Dan Quinn, who's the defensive coordinator in Dallas. I think, Tony, they need somebody with a firm grip, a firm grasp, somebody that has a resume. You know, Dan Quinn's been to a Super Bowl before. They had a meltdown in that Super Bowl, Atlanta, New England. We know that. But he has been there, done that. Uh, he's older. He is crustier. He has a firm grasp. And I think that this team, this group, as we've seen this last year, Tony, needs that type of leadership. 
needs that type of guidance. It's probably not going to be him. It's probably going to be one of these younger coordination flavors of the month. Or if Jim Irsay has the decision, it more than likely is going to be Jeff Saturday because that is certainly in significant play, Tony, right now. If it's Jeff Saturday, which I feel that people have just become numb uh, to this coaching search, but they haven't become numb to the idea that Chris Ballard is still there. What's he doing there is the question. And we, the only thing I could take from this is, well, we'll see him next year, too. Ursay's not going to change a thing, is he? Is Ursay going to change anything as far as Chris Ballard is concerned? Right. Uh, no, no, he's no. Chris Ballard is at the head of this search now. Can I give you my opinion on why I think Chris Ballard is? Here's yeah. the reason: because I I think that when you have a head coaching search, when you're going to go out and draft your quarterback of the long term future, I don't think that Jim Mercey wanted to add general manager search. I think that Chris Ballard. This is just me. Could be completely wrong. I think he is in charge of this right now because Jim Irsay did not want to change over all significant pieces leading to the longer-term future here. Now, there's no doubt he still has trust. Trust certainly I don't have. Trust that you don't have. Trust that a lot of fans don't have. But at the same time, I don't think that he wanted to overhaul all significant positions from GM to head coach to quarterback of the future here with these decisions looming. Thus, Chris Ballard is the guy at the helm here to make both of these choices, or at least help with the head coach and then ultimately the longer-term future quarterback. That is a horrific theory that JMV is putting out there. My thanks to JMV, uh, the sports voice of Indiana. You keep Ballard because you don't want to blow it all up before you draft a possible franchise quarterback? I thought Ellinger, Ellinger was the franchise quarterback. But no, he's not. And then you had to pray that C.J. Stroud of Ohio State was going to get into this thing because if he didn't, well, what were you going to do then? Trade up for Levens? And then what are you willing to give up for that? But Stroud is in this thing. So you feel that someone is going to drop to four where the Colts' position is. And then you're going to draft another quarterback. Another franchise quarterback is going to take place. And you feel that Chris Ballard has the eye to identify that guy. Really? I don't argue that Chris Ballard doesn't have a better eye than I. I argue that amongst NFL guys, he don't got the eye. Because hasn't that been proven? Or was this a case of bad leadership from Reich to start with? It never could self-correct. There was a self-fulfilling prophecy, and you got to change some other things internally. And therefore, Ballard isn't the problem. But if JMV is correct and Ballard doesn't want Saturday there, and that's why this search for coach is the same as Moses leading the Jews through the desert. 40 years of, is this the place? No, 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 no. This is my cousin's place. We got to go to my sister's cousin's place. It's a different place. It's down this way. Just a little bit further. Come on. Well, then we're going to be waiting. We're going to be waiting if this is all about Ballard trying to power play Jeff Saturday out of the position because he doesn't want him there. It doesn't matter how you twist and turn it. This is a mess of the of the doings, the creation of Jim Ursay. This is a conversation of Jim Ursay's leadership, Jim Ursay's control or lack thereof. And I wouldn't mind a lack thereof if it was purposeful. This doesn't seem purposeful. Now, 
could all work out. I could be wrong. I always hold that out as a possibility. This does not seem purposeful. This seems haphazard. This seems reckless. Agree or disagree. Twitter at Tony Katz and everything. TonyKatz.locals.com. This is Tony Katz Today. Magically, as the draft leaked from Justice Samuel Alito describing his position on the on Dobbs on Roe v. Wade, just as magically as it appeared, and people don't know how it leaked, we are now told that after all of these months of searching for the leaker, the Supreme Court can't figure it out. Tony Katz, good to be with you. Find everything, TonyKatz.Locals.com. William Jacobson joins us right now, Cornell Law Professor, the mind behind LegalInsurrection.com. The, the Supreme Court, what they said, sir, is that they've been unable to, to identify the person. The team has to date been unable to identify a person responsible by a preponderance of the evidence. When you read this, first, what did their legalese say to you? And then secondly, as a man who, who teaches the law, who practices the law, who engages in cases, what does this say to you? Well, when they use that term, that does ju- kind of jump out at you, preponderance of the evidence. It's like a legal standard. It tells me that they think they know who did it, but they just don't have enough to, you know, out the person. So that's what it's telling me. They, they have a pretty good idea who did it. They just don't have enough evidence that they're comfortable going public with it. So that jumped out at me. Very unusual to see that. Uh, And the other thing is this was so botched. I mean, they should have brought the FBI uh, in on day one. They should have brought them in very quickly. I mean, we know when the FBI wants to get evidence, they managed to get evidence. They, They could have done electronic things. I mean, there has to be some sort of trail here that the longer you wait, the colder it gets. And they didn't do that. And so uh, I I think that that, you know, this was botched. Once they didn't find the person within a week or two, the likelihood they were going to find the person just dropped dramatically. So it was a completely botched investigation. So as you see it, botched because John Roberts, the chief justice, is incompetent in the administrative part of his task as chief justice, or botched because the last thing they wanted to do was out whoever did this because that would require some kind of punishment, and they didn't want to be in the position of actually carrying that out? Well, I, I, uh, maybe a combination of the two. I think that there was an administrative decision made early on to let the marshal of the Supreme Court who doesn't really have the sort of background and doesn't have the resources, forget background, doesn't have the resources to to conduct this sort of investigation, do it. So administratively, and I'm not sure why that was done, uh, it might be that the Supreme Court, you know, they're separate branches of government. The Supreme Court didn't want the executive branch essentially rifling through its files. So that might have been part of it. Maybe they thought it would be an easy thing to find out. So it was botched administratively. And, you know, I think that uh, in terms of punishment, I don't know. You know, I I don't think that would necessarily be the issue. I think it would have been important to the court long term to send a message that whether you're punished or not, whether you're disbarred or not, 
It may or may not have been a crime, whatever happened here, depending how they did it. Uh, so, but you, you will be found out. And that, so now we have the opposite messages. You get away with it. Talking to William Jacobson, Cornell Law Professor, the mind behind LegalInsurrection.com. You shared a tweet from uh, Jonathan Turley, uh, George Washington uh, University, one of your uh, contemporaries, who states um, it will likely revive concerns over whether the FBI should have been asked to take the lead on this investigation. The FBI should have been asked to take the lead on this investigation, and I, I think there will be plenty of people who will be like, yeah, but who trusts the FBI right now? Why didn't John Roberts ask for the FBI to investigate? Well, I, I don't, we don't know what went on behind the scenes. We only know what's, what's public, and what's public is that it was handled by the marshal. What the marshal did, we don't know. But we know, I mean, there, does anybody doubt that the FBI had they you know, put a full team on this? If they'd done a full court press that they they wouldn't have found the person. I mean, they find people who, you know, uh, have done other things that very far removed from the scene, electronic communications. They're good at breaking those sort of things. Uh, So, I mean, I just find it hard to believe that if on day one, uh, John Roberts had brought in, you know, the FBI uh, with a full court press, no pun intended, to, to find this person, I got to believe the FBI would have found the person. It's a limited circle of people who would have had physical access to the document. And, you know, we're not talking about a potential pool of 10,000 people who could have gotten it. I think we're talking about less than 200. Uh, So I I find it very hard to believe that the FBI couldn't have put, you know, put it together. Now let's take uh, something else Turley said. The Supreme Court's report indicates that they cannot isolate the culprit among the over 80 possible suspects for the Dobbs leak. It is an admission that is almost as chilling as the leak itself. As a lawyer, uh, you you speak to other lawyers uh, just as you are in the legal profession. How bothered are you personally by them not finding uh, the leaker or giving up on even trying? Well, I think it's, it's extremely troubling. I mean, you know, uh, whatever problems the judiciary has, and they have problems like the rest of society, you know, the kind of the sanctity of chambers is something that's respected, you know, and the fact that the chambers, I mean, the judges, what goes on behind the scenes, now have to wonder when they give a message from one justice to another, is that going to leak? When they circulate drafts, because, you know, the whole pro- it turned out that the draft that was leaked ended up being very close to the one that was published. But that's not always the case. A lot of times, early drafts change dramatically, including who's voting for, who's voting against. And so I think this is so disruptive of the whole process that you'd like to think that judges can communicate with each other and hash things out and talk through cases, particularly at the Supreme Court level, where everything they take affects a big part of society. It's not just like two individuals who get affected. You'd like to think they could go through that deliberative process without having to worry that everything you say can and will be used against you later on. Uh, So I think it's extremely, extremely troubling. You know, the only people who I think are in favor of it are people who are completely politically driven, who uh, were in favor of the protests or glad because of the result that got outed early. So there are some real, you know, uh, legal hacks out there who, you know, are celebrating this leak, but that's 
purely politically driven. And, you know, I, I think, you know, among conservative lawyers, had it been the reverse, I don't think anybody would have been happy if the decision had gone the other way that a draft got leaked. So this is really, to me, a liberal left-wing issue that there's some portion of those people, not all of them, some portion who view the, you know, the end as justifying any means. A leak that also led to the attempted assassination of Justice Brett Kavanaugh, never mind uh, a lot of uh, fear and and, uh, threatening of other justices. Uh, the view of the court going forward, I often discuss on the show, argue on the show that faith in institutions is lost, and I am at a loss as to how that returns. The John Roberts court, how much faith is lost in their ability to not be political when John Roberts goes out of his way to tell us how much he doesn't want to be political? Does this not finding the leak, the leak itself, affect uh, people's view of the court going forward? Well, you have to understand, ever since there was a conservative majority on the court, <clears throat> there has been a war on the court by many Democrats, and particularly Democrat politicians like Sheldon Whitehouse. Okay, relentless, endless attempts to delegitimize the court. So this advances their cause. If you want to engage in conspiracy theories, who benefited by this? The people who benefit, certainly not people who are interested in the substantive issue because it was going to come out the way it came out no matter what. But the people who benefit are the Sheldon Whitehouses of the world whose political goal is to delegitimize the Supreme Court, to delegitimize it because it's the one institution in government that is has a majority conservative bent to it. The rest of government is either completely split or left-leaning. Majority of institutions in the U.S. now are left-leaning. And the one that isn't is the Supreme Court. So this is being celebrated by people like Sheldon Whitehouse who want to take the one conservative institution left and delegitimize it. And I think that's a real problem, and I think they've been successful so far. They've been, I mean, long before, you know, uh, this decision overturning Roe v. Wade, Sheldon Whitehouse was attacking people. Look what they did to Brett Kavanaugh. Look what they've done to almost every Republican nominee to the court. So this is a war on the Supreme Court, and unfortunately the Sheldon Whitehouses of the world are winning. I thought that was a horrific and extremely important observation from William Jacobson, Cornell Law Professor, LegalInsurrection.com, and I appreciate him taking the time to be with us. It's an extremely important and horrific understanding of the situation, of of how much things are political, especially the things that shouldn't be political. There should be no politicizing. The leak was wrong, and we need to find who did it, and they need to be punished for it. The idea that that in and of itself is something that's questionable is frightening. It's a frightening, frightening idea and concept. But it is. Because the plan, of course, is to say, well, we don't like you, so therefore the thing has to change. This is where you get the idea of court packing. There's nothing in the Supreme Court, or I should say nothing in the Constitution, that states the Supreme Court needs to be nine members. It could be two members. It could be 23 members. That is completely and totally the the purview of, of, well, how many people does the president want to appoint? And if the if uh, the Senate will confirm, 
on the court they go and on the court they go and on the court they go. And that's the concept of court packing. But then there's the idea of saying decisions that we don't agree with means that the court is political. You, you know this is true because you've heard this expression numerous times. You will hear the talking heads ask the following question. So what will the conservatives on the court do? What do you mean what the conservatives on the court will do? How come nobody ever asks what the liberals on the court will do? Well, you don't have to ask because you know exactly what they're going to do. We've discussed it numerous times. Sonia Sotomayor does not adjudicate. She votes. Every now and then, she'll throw you a curveball where she'll be like, no, 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 this. And you'll be like, wow, you actually looked. All other times, she is voting. She is not adjudicating. Liberals on the court don't adjudicate. They vote. I have not seen anything out of Justice Katanji Brown-Jackson that shows me she is going to adjudicate. She will ideologically vote. They are fully aware of what it is they're there to do. And the press then doesn't pay any attention to that and says, how will the conservative court vote? Meaning, and how they translate it is, will they do the right thing or will they be conservatives? You can actually kind of see them kind of stroking their beard like it's one of those 1970s films uh, about uh, karate or kung fu and the and and the dojo master is going to whip it right across his shoulder like in a scene from a Quentin Tarantino film. Will the conservatives vote or will the conservatives do the right thing? <laughs> you, you can picture it. That's the way they play it. Always. So they have always engaged a phraseology about a political court with Sheldon Whitehouse, who is an awful guy. Oh, goodness gracious. If you don't know Senator Sheldon Whitehouse, you're you're doing good. You know what? I keep... Keep not knowing. That's all I can do for you. You know, knowledge is power. In this case, knowledge will make you weep. Don't know. But it's a solid point that that William Jacobson is making. And it's very dangerous that we make the court political. Damning and dangerous in every single way. And right now, I don't see the end in sight. That's a bigger problem. Keep it here. I'm Tony Katz. I am very happy to see more and more colleges, states, state governments saying we don't allow TikTok on our, well, state-run phones, things utilized for business. Tony Katz. Tony Katz today, this should be true nationwide. This should be true on individuals' phones as well. And it, it, by the way, bothers me to no end to say that. It bothers me. People make their livings on TikTok. I don't want to take their living from them. But there's a national security risk here, and it simply comes first. Now, you say to me, well, you didn't feel that way about COVID. Um, wait, what? You want to compare COVID and lockdowns, which I vehemently opposed, to not allowing the Communist Chinese Party 
to have access to people's data across the nation and how they may utilize that data or utilize those networks to gather more data, let's say on college campuses or amongst certain facilities like military or medical. We're really going to have this conversation or do I just get to laugh at you now and move on with my day? Because I'll do it. I'll laugh at you now and move on with my day. I don't mind. The state of Maine banning TikTok from devices that connect to the government network. University of Texas at Austin blocking TikTok from its IT network. This stuff's important. You can't, it's it's not the 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 program it's not the algorithm it's not it's it's the communist chinese they cannot be trusted and you cannot allow them access from your phone to the network that you are connected to thus the national security conversation thus different than lockdowns china must be stopped and i believe they have to be stopped on all the fronts we've discussed this repeatedly I believe that you have to build up your Navy to be able to stop them in the water, and you need to be able to stop them from a cybersecurity perspective. You need, you must thwart them. This is why you can't allow them to run the 5G protocols, which is why you have to stop Huawei and, and stop uh, the other one, or what, uh, ZTE. You can't allow them access to the United States. This is why Great Britain's stopping them. This is why Canada's stopping them. If there's one thing we can get the world together on, it's not allowing China to determine our technological future. I would figure that that's a no-brainer. And since we have a bipartisan Congress that created the Select Committee on China, and we have a bipartisan Congress that said we no longer sell oil from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve to China, we shouldn't even be giving away that oil. It's neither here nor there for this conversation. We do have some bipartisan agreement. And we can go far on that. We can go very far on that. Find everything, TonyCats.Locals.com. A brilliant weekend, one and all. We'll catch you Monday, everyone. Take care.